Just so you know, there may be some swearing. From the kitchen table, this is Gate Close Panic. My name is Farron Foster. I am a freelance writer, uh, an occasional filmmaker. That's probably it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My first memory of Farron was on a lunch break from uni in my early 20s when I was studying graphic design at UniSA. I used to visit Magazine Gallery for lunch and imagine my life designing the publications they'd meticulously curated. I'd see Farron sitting at her computer and imagine the confidence that it would take to put your voice out into the public space in the way that she was beginning to do at that time. It's interesting what we think we know about these sort of public figures people we feel close to because we're familiar with their tone of voice, we see their faces in print, we run into them at the pub, and we trust them to guide us through understanding the world. This is a long episode, and I've edited it differently to my usual style. I've let it be slow, I've kept in pauses, because I think there's something in the cadence with which Farron reflects on her life and career that speaks to how differently she's thinking and living when compared to those early days. Whilst great independent journalism is vital, it can also be hugely exhausting for the people creating it. And I like hearing Farron weigh up the benefits of her more prolific periods of work against those personal pitfalls. Like all of my season three episodes, this was recorded in late 2020. And the slowing down that you hear Farron refer to in her life is something I think a lot of us were starting to aim for last year. And maybe a reminder of that is good as many of us begin to sort of passively return to the status quo. Farron is a thoughtful, articulate and really candid conversationalist. Her storytelling speaks of somebody with a genuine interest in reflection and in understanding her life as part of a larger social picture. Enjoy the episode. Just starting where it feels sort of natural to you. When did you first start thinking about work kind of in earnest uh yeah I think it was reasonably present in my childhood the idea of productive work certainly we didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up and it was obvious to me that I would need to (laughs) bring in some cash (laughs) to support myself (laughs) um not that I was ever deprived of anything Um, But just that there wasn't the luxury of like, maybe I'll just do a degree for fun. But I remember first thinking about being a writer when I was really small. But I think think that's pretty normal. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Doesn't every five-year-old want to be a writer? Um, I I, I mean, maybe writers think that every five-year-old wants to be a writer. But you're right. I mean, it is probably one one of those careers and also one of those passions that we learn about quite mm. early on yeah um so but I'd always been interested in writing and I had I did pretty well in writing at school until I had a teacher who just didn't like how I wrote and used to give me really bad marks how old were you uh this was in year 11 and 12 yeah. um but luckily I did a moderated like I did the international baccalaureate so it's externally yeah. moderated and her marks didn't stand mm. what do you mean didn't like Uh, She thought that it was, that my writing was not um, structural enough, I think. Mm. Maybe a little bit too loose. And I can understand if you're assessing against a set of criteria, you need to um, 
ensure things tick boxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she just used to give me really bad marks and I was so confused and quite upset because I was one of those like academic kids that expects everything yeah. to um, be perfect. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I think I strategized that the easiest way to make money as a writer, to have a steady career as a writer, would be to study journalism. Yep. Yeah. Um, what was the culture in your house around sort of what you're expected to do in terms of um, after leaving school, in terms of earning money and study as well? Uh, my mum is very kind and she didn't she wouldn't have put any expectations on us particularly um I think and she always used to make a joke about how it would be really great if I was a dentist but only because then she wouldn't have to worry about um me and money at any point she was pretty keen on the idea that I'd study law because I think Mm. she thought I'd find it intellectually stimulating yeah um but there was definitely no actual pressure just like you know an adult attempting to give a teenager some guidance (laughs) Uh, and my brother was really ill when we were in our teens Mm. um, and he couldn't finish school because he was so sick so there wasn't like a it it was acceptable kind of whatever path you wanted to take through life Mm. um, which was really nice I'd just come from like a really left-wing atheist family. I'm very lucky <laughs> living all of those values. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I chose journalism and then I deferred mm-hmm. um, for a year. I think, again, lots of academic kids. Like, I didn't feel a lot of pressure in year 11 and 12, but I did feel... Um, that I just wanted to um, not expect so much of myself for a year. Yep. Um, so I'm, and I was like 16 when I finished school. Yeah, right. So I went and worked in a cafe for a year. Nice. Um, and somebody threw fry pans of hot oil at me. <laughs> and it was a generally um, pretty wild experience. Oh my God. Uh, it was amazing. Fuck. Um, but I... Uh, oh my god welcome to the working world yeah it was a really good grounding in like how to deal with stress Mm -hmm. and um, how to work with other people and how to manage like I feel like a lot of work is about managing other people's emotions right Um, and that was the cafe was owned by a husband and wife team who hated each other they were there (laughs) all the time (laughs) and it was just them and me Jesus. And they, yeah, they were having a good time. Interesting little insight into uh, working with a partner. Yeah, well. totally. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting that I would go on to work with my partner, or two of my partners. Mm-hmm. Um, Didn't you off then. <laughs> I thought, there's no hot fry pans here. <laughs> what could go wrong? Um, oh, okay, so that was for a year, and then, and then did you start after that? Yeah, and that year was actually... Um, I think it was the Howard government and they were upping the university fees quite mm-hmm. significantly. So I wanted to take a whole year off, but I ended up doing one subject in my um, gap year 
in order to get the cheaper university fees mm. for my whole course. Right. Um, but it was interesting starting uni at a time when, like, the student unions were very strong mm-hmm. and there was something to be said at that time. Like, there was a big issue to tackle. Um, but then they defunded all the student unions and the rest of my university was it was a very quiet um, political <laughs> world. Um, how was it for you that's studying and being at uni how did you find it uh, uh, disappointing is probably the biggest because it wasn't what you'd been expecting it to be yeah I just expected that university learning I think I was very spoiled by my high school experience I went to a really good public school Mm. but um like we did philosophy, doing the international baccalaureate, you have a very rounded way of thinking about things. They teach you analytical skills. Um, yeah, they teach you critical thinking when you're in year eight. Yeah. And so I thought when I got to university, it would be an extension of, um, you know, digging into perspectives and how perspectives are formed and dominant narratives mm. and and it wasn't. <laughs> it was the um journalism course at UniSA is reasonably practical which I think is a good thing in Mm -hmm. lots of ways but um just not how I'm uh inclined I'm much more interested in you know looking at the ethics of storytelling and um examining language and how it reflects cultural Mm -hmm. ideas and that just wasn't part of the course um it's like this is how you use a radio studio which is also really interesting um but only for like until you get it and then it's not so interesting yeah um yeah right how in that case sort of how how did you just stay in it full time basically through the whole course yeah i studied um so i did a double degree with international studies as well um so it's like a four time four years full-time degree um and I worked basically full-time in hospitality as well Uh, (laughs) how were you living were you in a share house or at home uh I moved out of home when I was 19 Uh so I think I was at uni for two years before I moved and I lived in the hills so I was like mostly living in my car, like driving down to McGill for uni, then going to work in the city, working late nights. And then I was doing radio for uni as well, like breakfast Mm. news radio. So I would start sometimes at like four. So sometimes I would actually just like sleep at a friend's house or sleep in the back of the car for a couple of hours and then go to radio. Isn't it confronting when you think about how much energy you had as a teenager? Oh my God. (laughs) I also was, um, I used to compete like at a national level with show jumping. What the hell? (laughs) So I was training like three horses and on lots of the weekends, like driving far out into different parts of the country and competing and then coming back and just think about it now and I'm like uh, and drinking really heavily yeah of course like (laughs) I don't know I was very sick a lot of the time though which makes sense yeah (laughs) so wow okay um, yeah it was was a fun uh, I think it was fun um Mm. but it was also like now I think about it I just um completely refused to let myself have any 
downtime anytime by myself. I didn't really like thinking. Yeah, just thinking I found really confronting. So it was heaps easier to do a million things. things. Yeah, right. Were you um, conscious of the fact that you were avoiding that at the time or is that only retrospectively? I think it's retrospective. I think at the time I was like, I like being busy. I thought that I was a social person, which is entirely wrong. Or I don't know if I've just changed. Yeah, um, Yeah, I thought that I just liked to live my life that way. Mm. Um, but on, on reflection, I was just yeah didn't want to spend any time being me yeah yeah did it continue in that vein the whole time you were studying yeah I think so because I finished studying reasonably young like 21 or 22 um I just wonder because I think you know if you're kind of living at that sort of a velocity Mm. once you get propelled out of university what do you do with yourself when you don't have that focus point anymore yeah I think that's interesting I had uh, shifted focus from university because I found it so disappointing Um, I found the international studies degree reasonably interesting that Mm -hmm. did have some of that more um, philosophical way of thinking about the world in it um, but by the end of my degree, I was not really going to lectures or shoots. I was right. just, I would read the readings, I would write the assignments, uh-huh. and I usually got decent enough grades to make up for my lack of attendance, yeah. and then I would be at work, um, okay. or on a horse, or yeah. drinking, <laughs> or whatever. Um, so when I finished uni, I was... Um, relieved mostly yeah, okay. um, that I just didn't have to yeah I, I feel like maybe if I had a different attitude I would have learned more um, but I was mostly relieved like I felt like I was just doing assignments yeah. to get the degree I wasn't learning anything I wasn't getting anything out of it mm-hmm. uh, and I'd started working at Radio Adelaide the community radio station mm-hmm. before the end of my degree so I was learning a lot from the journalists there yeah, right. and I felt that was a much more satisfying um, way of getting experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, when it was over, I was pretty stoked really. Yep. <laughs> um, and I, what were you thinking you would do next? Uh, naively, I thought that I would find a job as a journalist Um, (laughs) but I do uh, I I don't know if this is a funny story for anyone but but me I thought that I didn't have any real feelings about it but I do remember going to my graduation learning that the people either side of me had jobs at TV stations and just quietly crying (laughs) because I was like I've been in lectures with you guys and I really didn't feel like you were even that interested mm-hmm. um but you know tv journalism is a different beast as well yeah uh, <laughs> a very different personality i imagined yeah um but what i ended up doing i was working at a coffee shop on Hindley street full time mm-hmm. and the fringe was like two doors down so i made coffee for all the people who worked at the fringe nice. and i think out of um, pity they gave me a job as a publicity coordinator 
brilliant. So that was brilliant my way first of framing yeah. something that you managed to achieve. <laughs> they just kept coming in and being like, "So, you, what are you gonna do now you finish uni?" And I kept being like, oh, "I don't know. Maybe I'll to think. go to Border Town, the advertising for a journalist or something." But I really wasn't um, committed enough mm-hmm. to do what what you really need to do as a journalist is go country yeah like try and get into the abc cadetship program Mm -hmm. go country really like do the hard yards be the real estate editor at a country newspaper Mm -hmm. um and i was too busy like my boyfriend was in a band (laughs) i can't go live in border town (laughs) come on um yes so i got a festival publicity yeah that's also that uh, Not Watertown. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure Watertown's actually great. Yeah, so sorry, Watertown. Uh, <laughs> I was just a, a dickhead, obviously, at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, it was a three-month contract, mostly mm-hmm. over the festival's duration. I loved the team that I worked with. They were lovely people. But publicity is a... Um, it's a difficult job, I think. And you have to be really good at it and have this energy that I don't have yep (laughs) and it's so uh, yeah it really involves a lot of communication you have to be relentlessly positive Mm -hmm. Um, you have to deal with other people's problems like their deadlines their lack of interest in their jobs um and I found it just really hard. I don't think I was bad at it, um, but I didn't want to spend the rest of my life um, <laughs> trying to convince journalists to write about something they weren't interested in. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, and I think if you are kind of starting to realise slowly that perhaps you're not as social of a person as mm-hmm. you've been telling yourself you were, publicity is going to be the thing that that hastens that process absolutely (laughs) especially publicity for a festival where you're you're like out yeah with the artists with the media facilitating what you would call organic interactions to try and get stories off the ground you're making friends with people so they have more obligation to write stories for you yeah i just no, I have like four friends. I'm really happy with that. Yeah. I need to expand my. No, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, just the just the the fucking emotional labor that goes mm, into that, mm-hmm. and how compromising, how intensely compromising it feels. Particular, and I mean, I do think you can kind of um, dilute that a little bit if you feel like what you're trying to promote is worth promoting. Mm, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, leveraging your friendship for yeah. return it's never gonna feel good yeah I feel like I have some really good friends who are in publicity and they have this magic where mm. it's not exploitative mm. and I think they maybe just have a better idea of what stories will sit with what publications yeah. than I ever managed to wrap my head around but I think the other interesting thing about that job was um, my boss was a heterosexual white male, mm-hmm. which is very rare in publicity. Mm. There's a lot of women, mm. um, or yeah, a lot of uh, gay men mm. as well. 
not to be super generalist, but I think that's like marketing and publicity. Yes. People get pushed into those um, areas. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had a sort of a different experience of publicity because I was attached to Duncan. Right. And he was, I guess, treated differently than if I'd had a female or a non-binary or a, um, yeah, not straight boss. Yeah. Um, Different how? I, you know, he was one of the boys of the, and there is weirdly in arts journalism, a bit of a boys club, or there was back then, I'm not sure if there still is in Adelaide, but like, yeah, the arts editors of the national newspapers tend to be men. Yeah. The arts editor of the advertiser is a man. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Peter Gers, who is really, really a man. It's really a boys club and um, inevitably, I think if you're selling stories to that group of people as a woman, mm-hmm. you, uh, when you get really desperate, you fall back on a different set of skills or a different way of appealing to people, whereas he was matesy. Um, and on the plus side, he didn't expect me to flirt for stories or anything. <laughs> he was really reasonable about that. But I think um, having been around the industry since that time, I've realised that I probably had quite a sheltered experience right. of publicity mm-hmm. and still really found it confronting. Yeah. Um, where did you go after that stint? Yeah, I was just trying to remember. Uh, so, yeah, that was three months. And then I think I was just working full-time hospo. Mm-hmm. Um, Josh, who would later become my partner and who I would later run City Mag with, um, had started his first magazine. So I was doing some writing for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very like <laughs> unprofessional <laughs> um not they were doing a good job my writing was heinous um, <laughs> what uh, were you writing about oh whatever they threw me i remember writing about like trauma in the armed services and having no idea what i was talking about oh, wow. i just interviewed i think i interviewed a psychologist who had done a phd in the area but <laughs> i was just like like an early 20s person writing about something they don't know about and trying to use big words when it was unnecessary, (laughs) that kind of thing. Um, But I managed somehow to get an internship at the Independent Weekly, which was a weekly newspaper that Adelaide had as an alternative to the advertiser, similar in model to the Saturday paper. Yeah. and I don't really know how I got the internship. I think a friend of a friend worked there, a classic Adelaide story. Yeah. Um, and I was, the editor there was amazing, very generous person. He spent time with me during my internship. I wrote a lot of really boring stories about real estate about like new person appointed in business you've never heard of and nobody really cares about but he also said what's happening in your local area Mm. and find something to write about submit me a story it might not get in the paper it might um 
so I went to a Burnside council meeting and there was this massive issue with Burnside Council and um, development policy, which doesn't sound very exciting now I say it, but um, and there was a heritage cinema involved and I wrote about that and it was the front page story wow. that week and I was so excited, yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't think many other editors would have taken the time and it was such a small team as well. Mm. Um, yeah, he took the time to help me improve the story, to steer me, mm. um, for it to be worthwhile. And then he uh, lobbied to get me a job, which they didn't have a position, mm. but um, they created one. i not 100% sure, but I think he took a pay cut to create some of the funding Wow. for a position obviously he also needed a journalist like, yes, yeah, he had a couple but yeah. he needed more people mm-hmm. um yeah so I worked there for a couple of years nice um which was great I learned yeah. so much yeah. um I did I just don't think for journalism you can learn that much without being on the job it's a funny uh, I mean, they talk about university. I don't know if other people have been following the um, political debates around what universities should be in Australia, but um, the history of universities are really interesting and things like journalism got dragged from basically technical Mm -hmm. training into um, universities, academic training, um, and I, I just don't know if they're really suitable no. um, to be in that system yeah. uh, so and and what I was craving while I was at university um, which isn't very technical I got that on the job as well the ideas about what is and isn't appropriate what is and isn't ethical how to deal with the subject writer relationship all mm. all that stuff you do get on the job if you have good mentors yes. around you yeah. um, and people who are willing to take the time to have a conversation yeah um yeah so the two years I spent at the paper were amazing Mm. I did like state budget lockups where they they lock you in a room for eight hours with the treasurer and (laughs) boffins from the treasury department and you have this stack of papers that the budget for the year that nobody's ever seen before and you have to read it all and ask them questions and then write stories before all in the eight hours yes um, I imagine that being a pretty steep learning curve. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and especially because it's an independent media. Mm. Nobody has any resources. You're doing five people's jobs. Um, suddenly you're the business editor six months into the... <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it was a really steep learning curve, but because I'd been traveling at the velocity that I had been mm-hmm. um, throughout high school and university, to me, working that hard was absolutely feasible and uh, totally enjoyable. I also was getting paid so poorly <laughs> that I had to work at a pub as well. So I was working at the Grace Emily. Uh, <laughs> and they have like their biggest night is Monday night 
Yeah, because they've got music, right? Yeah, they have like a um, open jam mm. night on Monday nights. So I would work Mondays till like three, and then we would start. We had rolling shifts at the paper, so I didn't always start at six, but some days I started at some weeks I started at six. It's <laughs> just like, oh my God. Uh, yeah, I got really sick. I also lived at the pub for some of that time, mm-hmm. so I was not um, sleeping and was drinking a lot because it was loud. Like, yeah. there's no point yep. trying to lie down and go to sleep at 9 pm when there's a pub below you. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. If you've got the energy, then. Yeah, totally. There's no part of you telling you not to do that stuff, I think, when you're that age. Yeah, mm. definitely. Um, yeah, right. Um, yeah. Did you have a sense that that was coming to a close when it was, that job? Yeah, it's... It, the paper shut down, yeah. and that's why um, I lost my job. Uh, it was funny because it was always in a state of disaster. Um, so... I don't think I anticipated that it was going to shut down. Mm-hmm. I thought we would be constantly in flux between... We had a bunch of other um, publications that we did for money. There was, like, the Catholic newspaper that we did. There was something called Sports Beat, which sat in pubs. Um, and that company also had in daily. Right. Um, so we were doing the online and the print uh so i thought we would just constantly be kind of like moving bringing on new publications letting go of other ones and to try and make the budgets work yeah but i mean it was 2010 i think Mm -hmm. that it shut down it might have been 2011 um but i guess it was kind of like being at the the forefront of the beginning of the media collapse in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, Were you conscious of that? Were you feeling like it was part of a bigger shift? Yes, I think so. Um, I think anyone who worked in journalism was probably pretty aware mm-hmm. um, because we were... Especially because of the generational crossover. So my generation of journalists were you know early 20s but working with people who were 50s or whatever who were our bosses mm. um, and they always had stories about like being flown places in helicopters and <laughs> long lunches <laughs> <laughs> like mad men style yeah. shit that you're like oh it's so remote from my experience of this industry where all we do is you know we could barely leave the office to do an interview Mm. even if the person was down the road it's more time efficient to do it on the phone so you do it on the phone we didn't have the gear to do it on the phone either so we all had cricked necks from holding the phone between our ear and our shoulder while we were typing the quotes out (laughs) um yeah so we were definitely aware and when I say at the forefront of the collapse, I mean, I guess the industry had been collapsing long before I got there. That's probably pretty egocentric. Um, we, yeah, we were aware that the money had been flowing away yeah. from the industry for a long time. But it's interesting as well, a lot of the time, and I think this is a good thing in theory, um, editorial is separate from 
sales mm. in most offices and they don't talk to each other very much, like, you know, maybe over a beer, but mm. not about work. Um, so the journalists often don't have a good picture right. of the financial health of their publication. Mm. Um, and I think it's strange to work in a business where your wage is paid but you don't really understand the product that brings the money in. Like you don't understand what people are selling yep. to advertisers. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways they're selling your work, but in other ways they're definitely not. <laughs> they're selling your audience. Um, yeah. So I was aware, but probably nowhere near as aware as I became yeah, right. after beginning to run my own publication. Um, as you were sort of exiting that that role, um, did that kind of that awareness um, inform what you were thinking you would do next, or was it for you really evident that you would just sort of continue on in that industry, sort of um, irrespective? Um, I think I was pretty devastated by the loss, because yeah. um, it did feel like there weren't any other opportunities and. Um, I had really, I felt like I had a lot more to learn, um, from those people as well. Um, and also, you know, being a left wing, like a hard left wing person, I didn't feel like there were a lot of media choices that aligned with my values either, um, without that independent publication um and i didn't want to leave adelaide because uh, i uh, as much as i really base a lot of my life around work i feel like um my family is very important and i can't just be like see ya mum <laughs> thanks for bringing me up uh, <laughs> but yeah. i've gone now uh, <laughs> um so i yeah i just I went. I started working at the pub, pretty much full time, mm. and being sad. And then I got a dog, <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but at least I have this puppy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Josh was running an art gallery, um, yeah, right. so I helped run the gallery, mm-hmm. um, worked at the pub, and then my former boss from the paper got me a job in politics. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I worked um, for Kelly Vincent mm-hmm. um, for a couple of years. What did you do for her? Uh, I started as her media advisor, mm-hmm. um, and then I became her chief of staff Wow. for... But I didn't, I became the chief of staff because the chief of staff I started under was leaving. We'd found a new chief of staff. I said I didn't want to do it. I, I was so young. Kelly was so young. I'd never worked in parliament before. <laughs> Kelly had never been in parliament before. I was like, I think somebody needs to know what they're doing yeah. <laughs> to yeah. steer this ship. <laughs> um, and there was like a six-month gap right. between um, when the last chief of staff was leaving and when the new person we'd found could come in. So mm-hmm. I covered the six months as yeah. chief of staff. What does that involve? Uh, 
changing. Um, again, it's a small workplace. If you work for an independent upper house MLC, it's not a resource like a minister's office. Mm -hmm. um, so there's we had two permanent staff and like a intern cadet type mm -hmm. person. Um, so we dealt with constituent issues. Um, and I guess, yeah, the majority of the job is like three things, constituent issues, policy issues, and party issues, kind of like dealing with um, her party was Dignity for Disability, so you have to kind of liaise with them um, on your stances on the two other two things, policy mm -hmm. and constituent. Um, yeah, so it, when I was media advisor, I was more responsible for the constituent stuff as well. Um, so it's a lot of harrowing phone calls, particularly when you work in the disability space. I, um, my, I have an uncle who has quite severe disabilities, so I'm fairly familiar with the system, mm -hmm. but it's really broken. Um, and I thought that I was aware of that and I knew the level of um, emotional weight that that would entail in the job um, but it's just uh, it's unfathomable mm. until you're talking to people every day about the horrible situations they're living in and it's amazing to be in Australia and saying that and so disappointing mm. and the lack of um, just the lack of care for individuals um, that I would see as we advocated for them um, was astounding I don't know how people can work in those spaces and forget um, that their job is to improve people's lives mm. but really most of the time what they're doing is leaving them in dire circumstances mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you find that experience crushing or did you find it sort of agitating mm, yeah it's, I think I found the constituent side of it um, enlivening mm -hmm. in a way that I really like wanted to fight mm -hmm. um but then that was paired with the political side of the job uh, which i found crushing mm -hmm. i had thought i was very cynical about politicians and i realized that i was not cynical enough <laughs> which i was really surprised about um but it's so self-serving our political system and it really enables people to see politics as a career, which results in them thinking about their own goals. Um, first, not all politicians are like this, but I would say the vast majority of them. The idea of public good is so far mm -hmm. from their minds once they're in a position of power. Um, yeah, and I just was actually surprised by that. Mm -hmm. I thought there would be both things, a balancing of um, public good and personal ambition, mm -hmm. but there 
wasn't. And there's so much double speak in politics as well. You're sitting in a room having meetings with people and you know they're lying. Mm. <laughs> and it's not really lying, they're just pretending that they agree with you to get something or yeah. whatever. And I, both hospitality and journalism are very plain speaking worlds. Um, and I found it really hard to deal with all the bullshitting yeah. that we had to do every day mm-hmm. um, with pretending that people weren't, that people's positions weren't heinous <laughs> when they clearly were. Yeah. Um, yeah, I found that really crushing. So I got kind of caught in the middle where mm-hmm. I was like, I really want to fight for this constituency we've got and then the system through which you can ultimately achieve something the political system is so dysfunctional i don't know what to do Mm. um how long did you do that job for about two years and i think kelly was is a really amazing person and she was less crushed by (laughs) these forces than Mm -hmm. i was which is great um and she achieved some great things while um, while I was there and while I wasn't there. Um, but I, we did some work around um, how the justice system um, works with people with disabilities. I, prior to some of the amendments we made, people couldn't testify if they didn't communicate in a traditional way. So if somebody used a communication board, you know, pointed at words or letters, um, in order to communicate, that wouldn't count as testimony. Um, and it just resulted in all these pedophiles getting away with abusing children with disabilities. And yeah, it was <laughs> awful. But I feel like we made some really positive changes yeah. to um, how the police deal with people with disabilities and how people with disabilities are um, considered in the court system. Um, and that was a real uphill battle, but Kelly really kicked some goals there. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so it was, it's nice to have, there was definitely some positive stuff yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult because obviously there is a greater level of duress that you're under in a role like that. But I guess sort of correspondingly, there can be really great, a really great sense of achievement mm. really substantial achievement yeah that's born out of that absolutely um did you leave it because you wanted to get out of politics yeah yeah basically um i was beginning to feel completely crushed <laughs> um and also i was beginning to feel um drawn back to writing Mm -hmm. there was quite a lot of writing in that job I wrote a lot of speeches I wrote a lot of press releases I you know drafted amendments to legislation which I'm entirely unqualified to do (laughs) Um, but they you know they go through legal people right um, after you do it Um, but it wasn't um, yeah you know writing was like 10% of the job yeah uh, and I was just itchy Mm. to get back to it so Mm -hmm. I left and kind of was like I will go write a book oh sure (laughs) Uh, just like that um what were you thinking you were gonna write a book about uh I (laughs) 
a book that I've started working on now, yeah. somewhat 10 years later. Um, <laughs> my grandmother wrote her autobiography, um, but she was fairly mentally unwell. Mm-hmm. And um, she also had early, so she had um, bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. I, yes, I think that is the right nomenclature for it now. Um, I just always forget because it used to be called something different. Manic depression. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I know that it's really important to get it right, so I always <laughs> freak out about it. Um, yeah, she had bipolar disorder and also early onset dementia right. at the same time, which is a pretty interesting combination for someone to deal with. Um, but she was an amazing woman. She... Um, came from Turkey and she spoke seven languages even though she had no formal education she was an artist Um, yeah she she was just amazing she mosaic she painted and she wrote this book that was apparently quite good because a small publisher picked it up Mm. Um, and my auntie had like painstakingly typed out the manuscript for her on a typewriter (laughs) and then it got the first manuscript got sent back to her with edits and she was having a manic episode and she destroyed the manuscript like cut it burnt it actually physically destroyed it and rewrote her life story but kind of as a work of fiction which is wow. just <laughs> so strange because <laughs> um, she was her dementia was setting in at that point and her reality was changing and she was in the midst of this manic episode so it was it has resemblance to reality mm. but it is not what the rest of us were, were seeing as reality mm-hmm. at the time um, so I'm going through the um, new manuscript and the scraps of the old manuscript and writing something connective. <laughs> I, I, I feel like it's um, mostly a book about like the impossibility of fully understanding someone else's reality. Mm-hmm. Even if a person is very mentally well, mm-hmm. you can only come so close um, through empathy and communication mm. um, and I we lived with my granny and my granddad so I kind of grew up in this house where one person's universe was entirely you know you live in a house and you have a communal universe and you yeah. all sort of agree um, and she would just kind of sail off into this other universe um, which was kind of amazing I'm sure it wasn't amazing for her but when you're a kid and you're experiencing these um, dual perspectives on what is and isn't reality it's a really interesting way to grow up is that what you were trying to or thinking you would write when you left that job yeah yeah Yeah. Um, did you start that at the time I applied for a grant um, to go to Turkey and talk to some of her family mm-hmm. um, to begin research on it and I didn't get the grant and as someone who um, 
has become very attached to being successful, I thought that that meant I should throw it in the bin and burn it, basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I did that. <laughs> I threw the idea in the bin and burnt yeah. it for a while. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, rejection sucks. Mm. I'm really bad at it, and so which is obviously I... <laughs> such an ego thing, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you can know, I mean, like I am too, I'm absolutely terrible at it. The smallest, mm. like whiff of projection and I'm like done I'm out of here yeah 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 oh I'm terrible at this I'm obviously terrible (laughs) everybody hates me yeah Uh, yeah so um threw that away threw that away and then what did you do uh Josh and I was still running the gallery Mm. kind of we'd been running it um the whole time I was in parliament and we decided that um, but we were kind of struggling to pay the lease on, like, the commercial lease cost mm-hmm. on the space. Um, so we thought, that's cool. We'll just open a cafe in the gallery and we'll run the cafe in the gallery, but that's not very hard, so we'll launch a magazine. <laughs> and we'll run, we'll just be able to, like, write the stories in between serving people. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Good idea, guys. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, um, which so, is what you did. Which is what we did. Yeah, yeah, that's what we embarked on. We um, opened, we turned the gallery into an independent magazine store mm-hmm. and cafe. It was a pretty bad cafe. Sorry to anybody who came. <laughs> um, I feel like our magazine selection was solid, so though. Great. So <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, and we, I think we did that for like six months, and then we launched City Mag. Um, in the meantime, Josh had also run Collect, which was another magazine, um, which was quite successful, which he did with Adam Johnson, who's a designer. And I'd become editor of that towards the end of its life. Um, and it was selling really well internationally. Nobody in Australia cared about it, which was weird. Um, so I, we sort of leveraged the success of Collect to get financial backers on board for City Mag. And what were you thinking when you launched it? Um, let's make a Collect that Adelaide, for Adelaide. Um, so Collect had been about, I guess, the social movement back to local mm-hmm. and examples of people doing things on a small scale, really high quality, and then... Um, garnering success through um, the quality of what they were doing so we thought we'd just do a scaled down Adelaide version of that Mm -hmm. Um, I feel lots of this thinking is Josh's because he was always like the very big picture person Um, so I don't want to steal it (laughs) Um, but he um, was really into the idea of supporting Adelaide's mm. cultural um, trajectory mm. by giving by giving it narrative mm. in a publication, um, and I could see how we could do that really well um, mm. as the execution person in that team. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we just just thought we'd give that a crack. <laughs> and how was it? Uh, it was pretty fun, really. It was exhausting, mm-hmm. um, but 
for the first two years we only did print mm-hmm. quarterly print magazine um and because i was used to producing an enormous amount of journalism i just did that and that was fine mm-hmm. was fun um not that many people knew about us so not not that many people cared what we were doing and we were just like that's interesting let's write a story about it we didn't have to look at um online figures of how many people cared about art or how many people cared about refugee women cooking or whatever yeah Uh, we were just it was i really see it as like carefree days now but i probably cried a lot i'm sure um but it was, yeah, it was fun. And we did get some really good support. Um, Bank SA, UniSA, Adelaide University, the state government and the city council signed on. Oh. Um, so we were, I mean, we were terribly paid. <laughs> but we, we got $1,200 a month each or something and we could afford the print bill. Yeah. Um, and it was great mm. it was awesome yeah. and it was so fun working with like finally being able to pay the great photographers and writers and illustrators that we knew yeah. um and graphic designers mm. um yeah it was, it was awesome how did it change when you stopped being just print oh well yeah <laughs> i i just never had any affinity for online mm. um i guess I'm the right age to not get it I'm mm-hmm. 33 being 33 in 2020 I feel like the internet arrived when I was I mean it was definitely around before I was 10 but people started talking about it when I was 10 and mm-hmm. I've just been a lot of it my whole life and just pretended it wasn't there mm-hmm. until I was you know in high school and needed Wikipedia um, <laughs> And MSN Messenger, obviously. Of yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so online was just... And you just have to feed online so often. You can't have a magazine website without new content every day. Yeah. It was a whole new world um, that was just exhausting. And it's so different. Um, the production of online media to the production of print media there's a really different relationship between the audience and the editor I think Um, the audience is in charge online Um, they have so many choices Mm -hmm. and uh, you have a different mindset when you're looking at media online I think you might choose to read a long form thing but if you haven't chosen to read something long form Mm -hmm. if you're just browsing you flick between sites um, you go on to social media instead um, you reply to emails it's a different experience to engaging with a print product where in a print product maybe unconsciously but in some way you give yourself over to the architecture of the product mm-hmm. um, and there's a narrative that you can um, unfold through the architecture of the print product and I just found it so overwhelming to think about arresting someone's eyeballs online and getting them to stay there 
whilst achieving all of the other aims we had for City Mag, which was, you know, quality writing, quality photography, um, contributing to a larger conversation, um, pushing culture instead of just reporting on the things people were most interested in. We wanted to report on where we could possibly go as a city. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's... I don't think that content makes as much sense online. Mm -hmm. Maybe it does, but it's hard to balance with a business and online business model where you just need, honestly hundreds of thousands of people to be reading every story yes to make it viable yeah so where sort of where did things go from there um we started an online partnership within daily Mm -hmm. which was great they um they needed more of the kind of content we made Mm -hmm. like food and drink content (laughs) Um, but also they needed like they wanted I think um, to bring younger readers to Mm -hmm. introduce younger readers to in daily um, and to diversify their audience Um, and we needed a mailing list and yeah people to see our online content Mm -hmm. and that was a really constructive partnership so they would send our weekly story roundup out to their readership um and we our numbers really improved Mm. because of that but we're um really lucky that another independent media organization um saw value in collaboration instead of competition yes and i think that's pretty rare Mm. that kind of foresight Mm -hmm. especially in the like hungry lean world of modern day media where people just want to take your advertisers and your readers and leave you in the dust Um, and we experienced like there's a very aggressive side to media in Adelaide because it's a small economy small pool of advertisers people will go through your magazine bring every one of your advertisers and give them say we've got a bigger circulation we'll give you a cheaper price and just take take people from you um yeah also uh, they rebrand the the advertiser rebranded the city messenger as the city and built um distribution points like stands that looked like city mags um, which I don't know if it was a de- it's, it's hard to say definitively if they were deliberately trying to confuse people but I assume they were yeah um, yeah so it was um, yeah it was pretty disheartening yeah but also yes disheartening is a good word definitely we were disheartened a lot but it was also invigorating to always feel like the underdog and you know, we felt we were so full of purpose and um, <laughs> we were just um, saving the city. So, well, that's helpful. Yeah, that's thanks to us. <laughs> um, so, it was also like energizing yeah. a lot of the time, the adversity of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's awesome to feel like you're building something and that you're steering it. Mm. It's. 
um, so such an outrageous privilege mm. to do that yeah. to to be the boss of what you do every day and mm. what you're saying and um, the messages you're putting out into the world and to have an audience is so <laughs> ridiculously privileged that anybody would spend their time um, looking at what we did is still uh, kind of a complete mystery to me. Mm. But it's real nice of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously you're not at City Wagon mm. Yeah. When, I guess sort of when did you start to shift your thinking toward leaving or, or was there something that triggered that? Yeah. Um, it's a real slog. <laughs> yeah. Making that much content every day uh, we had an amazing team mm. and I don't think I'll ever get to work in a um, team like that again mm. just such um, intelligent capable funny cynical um, just really great people mm. who didn't take themselves too seriously just all the things that you want, really. Yes. Um, and who were respectful of each other. Um, yeah, but I was just beginning to get really burnt out from the online um, stuff, uh, from feeding. It really feels like you're just feeding the beast, mm. that if there's not a new bar or cafe or restaurant opening, you, you're, you've failed. <laughs> um, and I'm not... I really like drinking and eating, but I'm not that interested in writing about it. I think there is a lot of depth to the people who run those businesses in Adelaide. They um, are full of great ideas. They put a lot of care into what they do and they're... Um, they really care about their customers as well. They're not just like churning through money. But I just had interviewed all of them so many times. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, it is disheartening that it is a cardboard cutout of white men, usually a group of them. I don't think it's their fault, but there is a cultural precedent and women aren't encouraged into those roles and then... When you're writing about it, you're part of um, the machine that feeds the message out that, no, you don't own a bar, your brother does. <laughs> um, and that was problematic for me. Mm. Um, and for everyone in City Mag, yeah. not just for me. Um, but I was beginning to get pretty jaded yeah. about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I still really enjoyed making the print product but money was uh, the print always made money but the internet requires a lot of attention to make money so increasingly I had to spend time thinking about native content and all of that stuff mm -hmm. um, that all eased when we made Johnny Von Einem the digital editor because mm -hmm. he's amazing and just made everything so easy for me. Uh, <laughs> I just felt like I was like, here you go, here's the internet. 
and he dealt with that really well. Yeah. <laughs> um, he would still, like, we'd have Monday morning staff meeting and he would report to me on what was happening, but he just was all over it. Uh, so we try, we launched City Standard then in a bid, I think, to bring balance back to what we were doing as a media company. So I think City Mag had started um, with really high ideals, mm -hmm. um, and but we were always practical. We knew that we had to make money. Mm -hmm. um, but then adding online, you kind of skew more towards, um, yeah, I don't know, populist media, I guess, yeah. is a good way of, maybe a good way of explaining it. Uh, and we thought we'd like to bring depth back to our suite of reporting. Mm -hmm. um, so we uh, developed City Standard as a long form, community funded, collaborative, community collaborative platform where we talked, we could talk to a smaller amount of people who were willing to pay money, um, but ask them like, what do you really want to know about? Yeah. Um, and then my dream was just to spend my days writing long form investigative <laughs> deep thought pieces yep. um yeah <laughs> didn't work out <laughs> but you know it was um worth a try and then i think we all just got pretty tired yeah. from trying to uh support or keep all of those things in the air yeah um and it was a lot of pressure on josh to be we had a team of seven people mm. he was solely responsible for bringing in money to pay seven people to pay for a printed product print is so expensive like every time we printed city mag you could have bought a car like a nice car <laughs> um, but instead we cut down trees and popped them up and <laughs> put ink on them which is a yeah interesting like contrast in the left wing like oh, i love printed media and i love the environment what that doesn't make any sense <laughs> um yeah so i think it just got to a point where um we needed to change something about what we were doing mm -hmm. um so uh, we started looking into selling mm -hmm. the business um with the idea that then it wouldn't be Josh's sole responsibility to <laughs> make all the money. Yeah. He could continue doing what he's really good at, which is, you know, vision, long-term vision, strategic direction, mm -hmm. um, helping people understand the purpose of what is going on so that they might put some money behind it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so when it sold, which was amazing, mm -hmm. Who ever thought a media company would sell? <laughs> we were all like, no one's going to buy this. <laughs> um, and it sold to Solstice Media, who um, do in daily, which is great home for it. Um, but having worked there before, when I worked for the Independent Weekly, um, and knowing that the purpose of City Mag there would be um, to bring in 
the younger audience online to start making more money online um i just thought that it wasn't it wasn't me who was going to achieve those things Mm -hmm. because that's not what i was interested in doing yeah um and i was also just so tired (laughs) i just really wanted to lie down for like a year Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah so i left yeah yeah um I wonder, um, this is kind of a slightly more abstract question, but I wonder um, how your kind of relationship, because I mean, it does sound like you were pretty fucking busy mm, from when yeah. you left school <laughs> all the way through. Yeah. And you made that sure comment was. about not wanting to have any downtime, mm. not wanting to spend time with yourself. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there was a particular point at which you evolved out of that or was it just sort of a slow thing? Uh, I think after leaving City Mag, um, I did a complete 180. <laughs> I in just, what way? I just wanted to be at home by myself doing nothing. <laughs> I was so exhausted from... Um, between dealing with uh, our sponsors and advertisers, which I wasn't directly responsible for, but, you know... Um, we were very lucky that we had mostly people who gave us money because they did believe in the ideas so they had a lot of constructive things to say Mm. Um, and it was generally pretty good to listen to them but like interviewing six people a day talking to those people leading a team I just never wanted to say anything ever again. <laughs> never wanted to explain anything. <laughs> I just wanted to be completely silent yeah. and <laughs> not see anyone. Yeah. Um, except my partner and my dog yeah. <laughs> and my mum and my auntie. This <laughs> is the core, my best friend. Yeah. Um, the core people. Yeah. Um, Strung it right down. Yeah, yeah. I just was really, I guess, burnt out. Yeah. Um, and completely unsure of what I wanted to do mm. um, and felt like no energy mm. to do anything at all. Did you do anything? Uh, I freelanced, yeah, yeah. Um, and was so surprised at my capacity to make money as a freelance writer. I didn't – I thought it was going to be a flop, but it, it was – I you're just so lucky when you've been very visible as a writer mm-hmm. um, and I visibly left City Mag mm-hmm. and then whenever anybody thought I need a writer they emailed me yeah. <laughs> so it made it really easy to make the transition mm-hmm. um, yeah so I freelanced and I stayed at home and didn't have to go to events no openings if anything <laughs> um <laughs> didn't have to go out and drink heavily because i was so stressed that i couldn't sleep or eat um, and like yeah it was awesome <laughs> uh and eventually after a year or so tyrone and i drove around the country for like eight months 
Amazing. Which was great. It was a real extreme version of not doing anything or yeah. seeing anyone. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. What motivated that decision? Uh, we were cycling through ideas of like just something to break the cycle because mm-hmm. when you're in Adelaide and um, it's very easy to just continue doing what you've been doing mm-hmm. I finished working at the City Mag got freelance work from a lot of the people that I had known mm-hmm. worked tangentially with through City Mag and um, there wasn't while I was doing a lot less stuff mm-hmm. there wasn't um, space really for um, thinking about what direction I wanted to go in mm-hmm. um, and I think that was similar for Tyrone he'd been working as the creative director and went into freelance design and photography and we felt like we could just if we didn't consciously get off the cycle we would just keep going yeah. um, and I think uh, it's worth stopping and asking like is this good? Do I like it? Yeah. And maybe it is. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not. Um, and we thought if we got in a car, drove into the middle of the country where nobody could call us, <laughs> that would probably break the cycle. <laughs> did it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, people... It's also really scary as a freelancer to do that because you don't have much security and Mm -hmm. your security is being available whenever anyone calls you and if you're not available they'll find someone else yeah um so you know that you're going to come back and not have work but that was kind of the point so it was scary but also it did fulfill its job yeah yeah um how long ago was that uh, I think we came back about... We came back last November, so mm-hmm. nine, ten months ago. And um, I guess uh, what were you kind of hoping... Or how were you hoping your life would look after you guys got back? Yeah, this is a, um, it was a bit of a failure in a sense, the trip to work out what I wanted to do with my life because I just... Um, swam in waterholes, <laughs> lived in the ocean and um, got really incensed about mining and racism um, and didn't work out what to do. <laughs> but I did, uh, I think it was really valuable in it that it enabled me to examine my own priorities Mm -hmm. which is really valuable Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't feel so much that I am 100% defined by my work now I'm heaps happier to just be like that sounds fun sure (laughs) you're a good person I'll work with you Um, so that's really nice Uh, I think it's just made me much more relaxed about not knowing what I'm doing mm-hmm. um, but it's really confronting being uh, not not working for that long yeah. um, and spending all that time 
by yourself slash with one other person. Um, but also like crazy lucky and, um, you know, have the financial resources to do that and stop whinging. Jesus, man. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think there's something to be valid. There's, there is, pardon me, something valuable about acknowledging the fact that, that is confronting because I mm. think it says something about the way that we, the way that we think about what it is to lead a valuable life. Absolutely. Um, so you kind of, you went through that experience and orchestrated that experience quite close to that experience then being forced upon you again by this period of great death that we are now yeah, in. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about what this sort of last six months has been like for you, both in your work, but also sort of in your, like the effect that it's had on you personally and on your priorities. Yeah, I think I was really mentally prepared for um, COVID isolation mm-hmm. and <laughs> lack of work. Um, if you live in a, we lived in the back of a four-wheel drive um, for eight months, and so your house seems big. Walk <laughs> around it, like huge, cool. I don't need to go outside um, or to the shop. <laughs> I didn't see shops for eight months. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I really selfishly enjoyed it in lots of ways. Um, it had been hard. It was quite hard coming back from, um, being on the trip. I found it really overwhelming, um, having responsibilities to people again, attempting to fit those around work, um, just living a normal life I found really difficult Mm -hmm. and I'd just kind of like gotten used to that again and then COVID hit Mm -hmm. and it was such a relief to go back to not having to live a normal life and be responsible and um, I just find it really hard to literally respond to emails, text messages, phone calls. I, um, I know that lots of people have the same Yes. Thing. Um, I don't understand it very well. I don't know if you understand it better. Um, um, I mean, I, it's, it, I think that there is a personality type who is it's sort of enviably, and to some extent I think I am like this, um, able to just swiftly and naturally respond mm. in the way that you would if somebody said something to you mm-hmm. like it's not yeah. it's not possible for you to just stand there blankly and silently when somebody just says <laughs> something to you and i think with things like texts and voice messages and yeah. calls and that sort of thing i have that response definitely okay it's like it's a conversation i'll say what i would say if you yeah, said this to me with right. your mouth and that so yeah I'm quite good and quick with that yeah but when it comes to things like emails and also letters, mm-hmm. it's, it feels like more like writing totally. than it does conversing. So yeah. that is where I tend to get a bit of a block, Yeah, I think. Yeah. I've just extended it out to all, all <laughs> communication. I also feel like I just wish there was spaces where you could be untouched. Yeah. Where you could just be doing whatever you're doing and not have a responsibility to get back to someone. Mm-hmm. And it's really disrespectful, I think, to ignore someone because mm-hmm. um, usually people are reaching out with a genuine 
either they have a need, you know, they want to come pick up a crock pot or something, or they're like, let's hang out. Yeah. Uh, or they want to know how you are. Or so, you know, it's all generally really nice. Um, but sometimes I just want to not um, be part of the social world, I yeah. think. Um, yeah. And with COVID, you didn't have to be. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, we're not hanging out. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's um, less expectation. I still, I think people were still contacting, but mm. you could get into those conversations without feeling like they were going to end with you having to commit yeah. to something. Totally. And you could just like schedule them for a time that you felt like talking to yeah. someone. Just call them back when there's time because it's not that person's not going to be out at dinner. They're not going to be at work. They're just chatting. Um, but yeah, my, uh, my work did fall in a hole because mm-hmm. of COVID. I had, so throughout my, actually prior to leaving City Mag, I've been working with an American hotel company for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, they flew me out a few times to make magazines for them about um, neighborhoods they were building hotels in uh, and Josh did one as well Mm -hmm. Um, and I was on a retainer for them just writing articles, blog posts um, whatever they needed written, copy about whatever new room type they had Mm -hmm. Um, and they as a um, company had really good values about supporting the local community like it was um commercial work but really interesting I got to interview amazing artists a lot of the time and it was really cool um so I'd been on that retainer for years and then COVID being an American hotel company during COVID is not good (laughs) (laughs) um so they cut my retainer obviously um and I totally understand they needed to do that and I also had another client that was an American hotel company who I lost Mm. um and all my local work I guess paused but I didn't know it was a pause um so and we were about to buy a house we had put in an offer Mm -hmm. on a place at Port Adelaide actually next to where you used to live oh, next to Jess and Donna yeah right um it's yeah a building. yeah it's so cool um and I was just uh, I have because we did, didn't have heaps of security when I was young um I can get very stressed about money yeah. um not that I think about it very much but I've put you know, processes in place to make sure I don't have to. Yeah. Um, so we were about to hand over all our savings for a deposit on a house and had no income. It was prior to any of the support packages being announced and I was just like <laughs> in the fetal position on the floor. Um, and then I realised we didn't have to sign the contract. You don't have to buy a house if you haven't signed the contract yet. Amazing, what a revelation. Um, so we didn't buy the house and um, then we had the block of savings that we were going to put onto the house um, and I was like oh well we can live 
we can live on nothing. Mm. Like we aren't, we don't have dependent children or anything. We we'll, we can live on this money for two years if we need to. Yeah. Um, and then I just was really relaxed about not having any work mm. and not having to see anyone. And that's when I started writing the book. Because there's so much time. Yes, there what are you going to do? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so that was really nice mm. uh, for a couple of months. Also, obviously, outrageously horrible for lots of people in the world. Mm. Um, I feel like what's really bubbled to the surface through this, uh, all of this talking about myself is how lucky I am. <laughs> really very, very lucky. Um, yeah, and after a couple of months, work started coming back in. Mm-hmm. So now um, I'm doing a lot of film work mm-hmm. because people can't fly crews from the eastern states so like they normally would, so they have to hire people in Adelaide to make the content. Yeah. Um, so uh, there is a company called Run Wild Productions who are lovely, lovely people. Um, who give me a lot of work mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, writing some stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, but also um, I just started working with the Adelaide Review mm. and that was really nice to be back in um, working with an independent publication and Walter and Amanda are really great people. Yeah. And they're closing down and that's awful. <laughs> Yes, it is. It's really such a shame. Yes. Such a significant loss. Yeah. They've been here for so long and I feel like um, they have really adapted as the city has changed um, and become what the city's needed yeah. at every turn. And it's such a undeserved thing for yes. them yes. Um, to have to... Um, die because of COVID and and it's such a loss for arts I think in the city particularly which won't have a voice Um, because nobody else well I mean other publications definitely do have really good arts coverage but it's just not a focus Yeah. Um, yeah and without a focal point it's very hard for um, cultural ideas to remain strong, mm-hmm. I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm sort of conscious of the fact that we're kind of basically up to now, um, but is there anything that you feel like is salient that we haven't touched on? Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> um... I mean, I didn't really talk about being a woman. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, it's a pretty difficult thing to do a quick run around. Yeah, on. yeah, totally. Um, yeah. I think it's a... It's so deeply embedded in my experience being... Um, being seen differently. Uh, and I think it's really interesting for me having run my career in parallel with one specific man um, 
that Josh and I have had such a good collaborative partnership for so long um, and seeing the difference in uh, where that's led us. Um, I think he has so much to offer and mm -hmm. I think he has actually been undervalued a lot. Mm -hmm. But not, <laughs> just comparatively, I've probably been more undervalued. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's not surprising. Yeah. Um, and just, yeah. The, realizing after I left City Mag as well, all the things that I'd done unconsciously to ease my way through the world of media and um, various different industries that I were, had to kind of touch. Mm. I just, I don't really like wearing short skirts, but I wore so many of them. And it just it was a tool yeah. that I employed, mm. um, which I'm not uh, happy that I did that. It's not good for women. <laughs> um, but I am a fairly practical person, I guess. I just saw it as like, well... Means to yeah, I need to get this interview. I need the person to think it's worth engaging with me. Mm. Maybe this will help. Working within the system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and now I'm not under the pressure to work within the system. I um, mm. have more insight into the behaviours um, that I don't like and I don't think uh, um, gel very well with mm. my values. That's also got to be born of age and experience, mm. I think, because mm. it, having kind of been through all of that and having more of a sense of your own um, abilities and your own power mm. does allow you to feel that you can say no to employing certain tactics. Yeah, definitely. Whereas when you're younger, you're just scrambling. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll just grab whatever yeah. I can to stay afloat, basically. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think also, I just don't care as much now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if it doesn't, I'm, I don't know why I thought the stakes were so high mm. uh, for every little thing, but I really did yeah. think they were very high, that every interview needed to be amazing. Yeah. Um, and I think in some ways that's a really good approach to work I like the idea of not settling mm -hmm. for something that's not as good as it can be mm -hmm. um, but I think now I've probably valued self-respect and my own comfort above <laughs> the idea of um, squeezing a situation mm -hmm. into something that's probably never going to be anyway mm -hmm. you know yep. if the head of some sports club doesn't want to give me genuine interaction and good quotes I don't know if the skirt's going to make a difference <laughs> it might but it might not I, I genuinely don't know yeah um but yeah no I just don't care it's great beautiful um okay that's it cool good note to finish on <laughs>